Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to Budapest, Hungary, where the Conservative Political Action Committee, CPAC, is holding a conference to which European and American far-right figures have been invited, with many featured speakers. On Thursday, Hungary's kleptocratic dictator addressed the conference calling for Trump to, quote, come back to the White House and, quote, make America great again, then later hosted Carrie Lake, Paul Gosar, and more than a dozen other American conservative activists and politicians for a photo op at his office, including the Pizzagate conspiracy theory Jack Prosebik and former Senator Rick Santorum, telling them that Hungary has become, quote, an incubator where the conservative politics of the future are being tested. Joining us to discuss how he was prevented from covering the CPAC event, having been banned from entering the woke free zone, is Jacob Halbrun, an editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. We will discuss his article at Politico, I was banned from entering CPAC, Hungary's woke-free zone, a dispatch from the Trumpian rights pilgrimage to Budapest. Then we'll assess the growing evidence of ethical violations by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who appears to have been bought by a billionaire who has lavished him with luxury travel and vacations, bought houses for his family, paid for a family member's tuition, while his conservative activist wife gets secret payoffs from Leonard Leo, who has single-handedly stacked the Supreme Court and the federal bench with right-wing judges. Joining us is Eric Siegel, a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith, and he's also the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. Then finally, we'll look into the role of private equity firms who bankrupt companies they buy, stiff customers and employees, but make huge profits in doing so, rewarding their billionaire CEOs. Joining us to investigate the pillage by these vulture capitalists is Brendan Ballou, a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel at the Department of Justice. He was part of the original team that brought suit in U.S. versus Google and leads the department's work on private equity and interlocking directorates. Previously, he served in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. He is the author of a new book just out, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from Budapest, Hungary, is Jacob Harbrun, who is an editor of the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. And he has an article at Politico, I was banned from entering CPAC's Hungary's woke-free zone, a dispatch from the Trumpian rights pilgrimage to Budapest. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbrun. Thank you, Ian. So tell us about being barred from band. Not you went up to the, <laughs> you got, you actually got a press pass through the Center for Fundamental Rights, the Hungarian Center for Fundamental Rights, and they told you that we're, they were happy to provide you with the press pass and consider it done. But then, what a few days later, you show up 
at the woke free zone. So describe the scene. How do they set it up to basically only have friendly press? Well, I had been concerned about getting an invitation because I knew that they had barred American and British journalists the year before. This was the second year that CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, invited far-right nationalists from around the world, particularly from America, to come to Hungary to celebrate Viktor Orban and conservatism. And I asked for this pass a couple weeks earlier, and they assured me that it would be forthcoming. Then a few days before the event, when I was already in Europe, I got this note saying, watch it online. Sorry, Charlie. So I figured, well, I might as well go to Budapest anyway, since I'd been planning to. And maybe I can sort things out when I'm there. Nothing that I tried succeeded. I went to the facilities themselves and showed them the various emails and so forth, and they called various figures, but they were adamant that they would not let me in. And meanwhile, they were letting in dozens of people who'd had difficulty getting their, in their invitations as well. And ultimately, I think there are about five or 600 people in this enormous conference hall that I compared to a megachurch where Orban and various American right-wing figures spoke, including Carrie Lake, former Senator Rick Santorum, Tucker Carlson sent in a message, and Donald Trump sent in a video message calling the attendees great American patriots. Well, he got uh, (laughs) reciprocal praise, uh, Trump, did he not, from none other than Hungary's uh, far-right President Viktor Orban, who said on Thursday at the CPAC conference in Budapest, I am sure if President Trump would be president, there would be no war in Ukraine and Europe. Come back, Mr. President. Make America great again and bring us peace. Of course, the, uh, their idea of peace was uh, expressed, was it not, by Carrie Lake uh, at the CPAC conference in, hung- in uh, Hungary, where on Friday morning, she announced that the simple solution for ending the Ukraine conflict was essentially to sell out Kiev to the Russians, quoting Carrie Lake. The only way to stop this war is to turn off the money spigot. I say we should invest in protecting our borders, not Ukraine's. So that's their policy, right? Exactly. There's a symbiosis between the American and the Hungarian right And the Americans, including Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, see Hungary as a model for how to build what they call an illiberal democracy. Viktor Orban here has crushed the courts, cut the parliament size in half, and embarked upon a culture war. And finally, he has subdued an independent media. It's, it's basically state media here. I think there's only one television channel. So this is the dreamland for Trump and his cohort. And during the conference, it was very interesting. Speaker after speaker essentially pledged fealty to Orban, hailing him as a great leader who should be emulated in the United States. But the guy's a kleptocrat. He's a crook. He's got a bunch of crooked cronies hanging out. It's just a a, a mafia state dressed up, you know, with all this right-wing political ideology. Does Donald Trump strike you as someone who would have inhibitions (laughs) about that? Yeah, I see the pattern there, yeah. No wonder he, he admires Putin so much. So this is what Orban says, though, just to buttress what you you just said, Jacob, that he described Washington and and Brussels as being in the grip of liberalism, which he describes, Orban describes, quote, as a virus that will atomize and disintegrate our nations. And then he went on to say, Hungary is actually an incubator where experiments are done on the future of conservative policies. Hungary is the place where we didn't just talk about defeating the progressive and liberals and causing a conservative Christian political turn. We actually did it. 
So that He's is ab- uh, absolutely right. Hmm. They they have done it here. Well, they've done it by but, through censorship and and thuggery, right? Correct. That is that is the model. The, they don't want to simply argue with what they call liberal totalitarians. They they believe there is an entire ideology, what they call a Marxist woke ideology that is determined to upend the traditional family and pervert society. And that is what these American conservatives consistently hail them for, is for having pro-family policies and for passing anti-gay and lesbian legislation, which the parliament did in, has, in 2021. And they see Brussels, the European Union, which has reacted allergically to these measures as a liberal totalitarian force. So essentially they've embarked upon a war against it. They see themselves as defending Western civilization, which in their view is synonymous with white Christianity. What they completely leave out of the equation is the Enlightenment, which is a core part of Western civilization. These, they're pursuing an anti-Enlightenment policy, anti-classical liberalism, where people have rights. They want to take those rights away. What are we looking at in the end? We're looking at a form of Sharia law. We're looking at the Iranian Supreme Council. That's where these people want to head. Well... Specifically, though, the CPAC, of course, is an American operation, and it's run by its chairman, Matt Schlapp. And you just mentioned how Hungary's passed all these anti-LBGTQ laws, etc., just as uh, modeling after what Putin has done in Russia. I mean, half the Kremlin uh, closet gays. I mean, it's unbelievable. But And then you've got Matt Schlapp, the chair of CPAC there in Hungary, basically saying that the Hungarians have shown us a model for how to deal with journalists. And you you went in, you got stopped by the, no, the what is it called, the no-woke entrance or whatever? The woke no free zone. zone. Yeah, woke-free zone. Matt Schlapp says that the organizers and, and his team would determine who a journalist is and that it's quite revolutionary for the Americans because in America, journalists tell them who is a journalist and we treat them like a journalist. Now, interesting enough, Matt Schlapp himself has been accused of sexually harassing a young male intern, right? So, I mean, I don't understand how how you could support countries that uh, and policies that demonize gays and lesbians at the same time be in the closet yourself. Well, it's obviously allegations against Schlapp, but there is a strong punitive aspect to all of this. When they talk about liberalism, we should remember that liberal values, I'm not talking about political liberalism, but liberal values are supposed to be about tolerance, freedom of thought. Those are all the things that they're trying to, that they have suppressed to a great extent in Hungary. Um, Now, Orban, whether he will be able to successfully pursue this is open to question in the future. The European Union, as you know, is is with starting to withhold tens of billions. They're forcing him to begin reversing some of his crackdown on the judiciary. And if Putin loses this Ukraine war, which I think he's going to, that will also be a big blow to Orban. It is possible that what we are just watching here, or what I've seen in Budapest, is more of a clown show than anything else. I'm not convinced that it's politically saleable in the United States. But you, you'd still have to take it seriously, because Trump did get elected, and he's running, and he's the front runner for the GOP. So no matter how bizarre some of these things may seem, they are potentially dangerous. 
Well, you mentioned, uh, Jacob Harmon, the uh, European subsidies that have been looted and embezzled by Orban and his cronies. At least the EU sort of woke up and they're cutting back on that. But still, he's attracting, I mean, apart from the crackpots, you know, the Carrie Lakes and the Paul Gosars and Tucker Carlson's uh, obviously tape-recorded message saying, if I'm fired, (laughs) rather prophetic of him, I guess. But what troubles me is that the new Georgian prime minister, Iraqli Garabashili, he's there at CPAC and he's praising Orban for his far-sighted family values and and anti-LBGTQ positions. So having that guy, I mean, we already had massive demonstrations in uh, Georgia because that new prime minister, this admirer of Orban's, tried to impose anti-press laws on the model after what Putin's done in Russia. Yes. I mean, they see Hungary as offering a blueprint for establishing autocracy. And they're not wrong. The question is, can you really pull this off in America? And if you had someone like Trump come to power, yes, you probably could make substantial inroads in a, in a new Trump presidency. I think Trump would be much more uninhibited in his presidency. I think he'd go right after the military, the judiciary, and the press. I think it would be a very different country. And Orban Trump, does show... And pull America out of it. NATO, right? Absolutely. He despises NATO. And that would be it for Ukraine as well. There would be no more support for Ukraine. Well, I guess this all comes back to what's going to happen next year. And it's hard to believe that anybody supports Trump, but they do. It's just absolutely puzzling. It's nutty as these people are. And, you know, it was Sebastian Gorka there, by the way. Trump had one of these from the Hungarian fascists as an advisor early in his administration. That's right. I didn't see him, and I, I, he was not on the program. Right, right. But in general, have you ever been able to figure out? I mean, obviously, I don't think American conservatives or even the critics of what's happening in Budapest point out the kleptocracy angle, which I think is really important at the end of the day. You can't dignify these people as political leaders when they're just a bunch of thieves. Uh, it's the same thing with Putin and his cronies. Is there any the sense? The other issue is that, yeah, Hungary is in a recession and inflation is around 27%. Mm-hmm. So just just looting the place is not a viable economic strategy for the long term. My, when I came immediately in from the train station, my taxi driver to my hotel told me that his kid, children can't find jobs here. So it's not the paradise that's being depicted by American conservatives. Well, and on the and of course here in the United States, the paradise that Trump is promising is would be so dystopian. But again, I just I just don't know what the percentage of, is of people living in a in a bubble of delusion. I mean, DeSantis seems to be fading, and Trump seems to have locked it locked it up. But if you I don't know if you saw his deposition in the. In the e. Jean Carroll case, but <laughs> he's getting loopier and loopier by the by the minute. So I guess this this whole election in twenty twenty four will be a referendum on America's sanity. Well, Trump is angry, and a lot of people want to ride him to power themselves. Uh, another person who spoke at the conference was his former Attorney General Matthew G. Whitaker. Uh, I mean, they're they're all out there, and they're all hopeful that they'll have another chance to grab at the ring. <laughs> the bottom feeders unite. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Jacob. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Harbron, who's an editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, and a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. And he has an article at Politico, I Was Banned from Entering CPAC, Hungary's Woke-Free Zone, a dispatch from the Trumpian rights pilgrimage to Budapest. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the growing evidence of ethical violations by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eric Siegel, who's a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith. And he's also the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Siegel. Thank you, Ian. Always good to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us, Eric. And the drip, drip, drip of bad news about uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's ethical lapses or ethical void, I guess it is, since the Supreme Court doesn't even have an e- a code of ethics that they follow, whereas the rest of ju- the judiciary does. Is there a point at which you can shame this clearly shameless person? No, there's no question about that. Um, I was done with Clarence Thomas in 1991, which coincidentally is the same year I started teaching law after practicing for the Department of Justice for the Bush administration. <clears throat> so what I'm about to say, I want people to keep in mind, I was working for the Bush administration before I came into academia. Um, when he said it was a high-tech lynching, everything about his character came into play in that moment. Because the truth is, had the Senate decided not to confirm Clarence Thomas, and it was 52-48, it was very close. Had they had they not confirmed him, he would go back to his life tenured, well-paying job on a D.C. Court of Appeals, which many people call the second highest court in the land. Um, that's not a lynching. Ian. That's not even remotely resembling a lynching. And ever since that moment in time, he has repeatedly and constantly done things either right on the ethical boundary or, in my opinion, certainly over the ethical boundary. And what's happening now, I was listening to my friend and one of the best Supreme Court commentators in the country, Dahlia Lithwick, this morning. She had a podcast on this. Now, Dahlia is a liberal, you know, all that. So we have to keep that in mind. But um, she was saying, and it's a really good point, there is so much here now that it's hard to keep it all straight. So if you don't mind, can we talk about something that not that many people are talking about that needs to be talked about more? And that's what Ginny Thomas did in 2000. So I want to set the stage for your audience because it's quite dramatic with your permission. It takes about two, two to three minutes, but I can do it. Go uh, ahead. Is that okay? Go ahead. Yeah, so it's 2000, it's 2000 and, and Bush versus Gore is pending in the Florida courts. Everyone in the world knows it's going to the Supreme Court eventually, and of course it did. And everyone knows the Supreme Court shut down the um, recount, ensuring George Bush a presidency. He may have won anyway. He may not. We'll never know. But the point is they shut the recount down. On that, it was not 7-2. It was 5-4. Before Justice Scalia died, he used to say Bush versus Gore was 5-4. He was wrong. On this point of stopping the recount, it was it was seven. It was I'm sorry, it was 5-4. In any event, at that moment in time, Ginny Thomas is working for Heritage, which is basically a subdivision of the Republican Party, and the Heritage Foundation, which was founded by Joe Kors big conservative businessman, Cords Beer, and um, Paul Wyrith, among others. Paul was a huge evangelical um, uh, supporter that got the evangelicals into the Republican Party. Um, at that moment in time, she's trying to find jobs for people in the upcoming Bush administration, for people from Heritage. Now, set the stage. His wife is trying to get jobs for people in a presidential administration that doesn't exist yet. And her payments from Heritage may or may not, we don't know, be circling around, you know, how well she gets those jobs for those people. And he doesn't recuse himself in Bush versus Gore. I mean, that is inconceivable. And if he recuses in Bush versus Gore, the lower court decision gets upheld to its 4-4 tie. And that means the recount would have gone on. Gore might have won. Who knows? And all of world history has changed. All of world history. Because Gore does not go to war in Iraq. He certainly goes to war in Afghanistan, but he does not go to war in Iraq. Not a chance. So his wife was was directly interested in President and Bush becoming president of the United States. So 
and it's just gone downhill from there. Um, and you and I have talked before about, and I've written this down in numerous places, that it just so happens that Thomas's originalism, which he claims to be, he claims to be an originalist, he's not, it, basically what that amounts to is he votes for the Republican Party every time. Every time, without exception. Um, so it's really bad, and nothing's going to happen, probably. Certainly not while Biden is president. There is no scenario Clarence Thomas – if Clarence Thomas was, was, was uh, uh, accused of murdering somebody on Fifth Avenue, he would not resign during a Biden administration, during a Democrat administration. No chance, no how. Uh, none of them would, actually, I don't think. Um, so I don't – you know, it's um, – a real judge wouldn't do these things. Let me just say that. Right, but more recently, he was the only vote in favor of Trump holding on to documents that he claimed uh, were his when they belonged to the National Archives, and he's no longer president, so that claim didn't make any sense. And meanwhile, his wife is working for the people that are trying to steal the election and say Trump won. At the same time, he rules as a lone voice in, in defense no, of Trump. Well, I agree. Uh, that's very problematic, but but there's a, there's a, there's a, that's very problematic. So I don't I don't want to be on record as saying anything other than he should have recused. There is no question. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, in that case, the Supreme Court did the right thing. The documents came out. We found out Jenny Thomas was all over them, of course, um, and no harm was really no harm was done. That's not true for Bush versus Gore, right? Right. Just not, I mean. You know, what if we learned after the? Okay, this is a crazy hypothetical, so I hope your audience will bear with me. What if we had learned that one of the conservative judges had taken a bribe to decide Bush versus Gore? That would throw the world into like a panic. Like it would be just, well, this wasn't a bribe. I'm not saying it was, but it was completely, completely wrong for Thomas to sit on that case. So you know, um, but but you're right. The, 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 and then the whole Harlan Crow. So yesterday, the Washington it, the news keeps coming so fast, it's hard to keep up. But yesterday, the Washington Post reported something, and you and I think have talked about this before. Really, who's behind all of this is Lennon Leo. He, he is the common denominator. He's in that painting with, with Crow and Thomas and Crow's lawyer um, at that, you know, the painting of, of them at, at the uh, estate that Crow owns. And we learned yesterday, this is unbelievable, that in 2011 and 12, Leo funneled money Jenny Thomas's, you know, right wing public interest group and told the people funneling the money, don't put Ginny's name on it, comma, of course. And it's that, of course, that I think is so pernicious and so dangerous. It kind of suggests it's happened before. It's going to happen again. Right? Who says, of course, in that context? That assumes a, that assumes the person in this case, it was Kellyanne Conway. You know, it, 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 it all comes back to the leadership of the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo. He really is the puppet master here. Um, and that's really problematic, given that the Federalist Society continues to deny. He still, he is still, Leonard Leo is still the co-chair of the Federalist Society. And they continue to deny that they support people for public office, which is an amazing thing if you think about it. Talk about doublespeak, right? I mean, their co-chair is personally responsible for Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch being on the Supreme Court among other things. There and Leonard Leo represents the two descriptions of the current conservative or ultra-conservative Supreme Court. They're all about protecting laissez-faire capitalism and imposing moral authoritarianism. And given Leonard Leo's ties to Opus Dei, you know, you've got this bizarre situation where you have the most conservative Catholic clique running the court, who don't represent the diversity within American religion, let alone within the Catholic faith. Absolutely true. And, um, you know, the reason why Justice Amy Barrett is on the Supreme Court is because many, many years ago, when she was um, at Notre Dame, her dean, a guy named John Garvey, also a Catholic, um, whatever that's worth, uh, called Scalia up and said, you need to hire this woman. This woman is great. Without that clerkship, she would not get to the Supreme Court because, frankly, without the Scalia clerkship, her resume, I, I don't mean to be mean about this, but her resume is, is worse than mine. 
I was more published. I, I'm much older, but I mean, in other words, she, there were hundreds and hundreds of law professors just like her. It is the Scalia connection that got her to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories or anything like that. But this court was handpicked by religious leaders. And that's just true. And, you know, that's kind of problematic, especially when the religious leaders like Leo, who are picking these people, don't represent anything close to mainstream America. Right. I mean, nothing close. So it's really problematic. Justice Thomas has a wonderful smile and he treats the staff very well, which all the justices do not. I give him credit for that. We all should give him credit for that. Um, But behind that infectious laugh and warm smile is really a terribly broken man and a man who does unethical things, who probably harassed Anita Hill. Now, we don't know. We don't know but probably harassed him to hell. There were two other women willing to confirm that that happened to them from him, but Biden wouldn't let them testify when he was chair of the Judiciary Committee. His pattern of doing bad things is just really long, and he's exactly the kind of person we don't want on the Supreme Court of the United States because he has no moral lever, really doesn't. And, and everything he does iron off the court has shown that. And also this whole thing about him being a man of the people and going around the country in his RV and all this stuff, yeah, sure, he does that. He does go on an RV with Jenny and goes around the country. He also goes on super luxury yacht trips with someone who has huge amounts of interest in how the Supreme Court decides its cases. No one should be financially um, connected. to No Supreme Court justice should be financially connected in those ways to anybody who has any remote interest before the Supreme Court. Whether Harlan Crow had a case or not before the Supreme Court is irrelevant. The man has a laissez-faire capitalist agenda, which you just talked about. So did the Koch brothers. So does Leonard Leo. And so can I say one more thing about this? Um, Social movements always impact the Supreme Court. So, you know, Brown versus Board of Education was the result of of, uh, Thurgood Marshall spending years and years and years building a movement to convince the court that separate but equal was wrong. The whole 60s civil rights movement led the court to some very good decisions. Um, and, 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 and frankly, the same-sex marriage movement, I think, had an effect on how the court dealt with that issue. So there's nothing new about social movements affecting how the court decides cases. But this particular social movement, this, this, this you know, Koch brothers, Leonard Leo, Harlan Crow movement is a very different kind. It's not a movement of the people. It's not a movement of the kind of oppressed minorities that, you know, like the African-Americans were for most of American history. It's the movement of billionaires who want to push the court in one direction. And Harlan Crow is part of that. Leonard Leo is part of that. The Koch brother now, because one died, is part of all of that. And there's, and Sharon, of course, you know, I feel sorry for, on a lighter note, Sheldon Whitehouse, because he has been yelling all of these things for years. And he's been right for years. But you know what? It's almost like the boy who cried roof. I'm not criticizing him at all. But he's been yelling this for so long to so many people. that now it's just Sheldon again, which is too bad because he's dead right. Dead right. right. And, and, and the point that Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse makes is that these plutocrats could never sell their terrible ideas via the legislative branch or the executive branch. So they've chosen the judicial branch, which they've captured as a way to enact pro-laissez-faire capitalist policies along with the moral authoritarianism of of Leonard Leo. But specifically, the latest revelation about Leonard Leo telling Kellyanne Conway, yeah, that when asking her to give Ginny Thomas another 25K, uh, no mention of Ginny, of course. Uh, And this was, of course, Conway's polling company paying Liberty Consulting at least $80,000 between June um, 2011 to June 2012, Liberty Consulting being the company of Ginny Thomas's. And that at the what time, they were doing the there was lobbying against the Affordable Care Act. Right, but I thought they, they were also, weren't they also lobbying against Section 5 of, of the Voting Rights Act? Yes, 
Holder versus they, they filed an amicus brief. They, they filed an amicus brief in that case, basically quoting something Justice Roberts wrote, not with quotation marks, but basically paraphrasing something Justice Roberts wrote in 1981 um, when he was a young lawyer at the Department of Justice working for Ronald Reagan, and said that the Voting Rights Act is one of the greatest. Um, uh, it, it's a huge infringement on states and state rights, and they basically took that sentence and put it, among other things, in that brief. Uh, for those of you who don't, who, I mean, I, I say that because Justice Roberts has had it in for the Voting Rights Act since at least 1981, and it was struck down, you know, in the 2000s. So, um, yes, it, it's all part of the same cabal. Now, I want to say something, though. People would say that cases like Brown and Roe and Obergefell are all cases that the left used to get the Supreme Court to reach a result they couldn't reach through the democratic process through voting and, and that kind of thing. Because you said you know, they can't get this through through Congress or the state legislatures or the president. And what I want to say about that is it's one thing for the Supreme Court to protect a traditionally disadvantaged minority who doesn't have access to the political system like the majorities do. The billionaires who are behind this particular capture of the Supreme Court have all kinds of access. And although they are a minority in the sense that their views aren't shared by the American people, they are not a minority in the traditional sense. They've not, these billionaires have not been discriminated against since the beginning of time, unlike African-Americans, unlike women, and unlike gays and lesbians. And it's in those areas, and we could argue about women now, you know, women are maybe a different matter in 2023, I'm not sure, but certainly when it comes to African-Americans, people of color, and gays and lesbians, it is the court's job to protect minorities if the Constitution is violated. Um, or if it's not clear, but it's not the court's job to protect billionaires who have complete access to all the politics they want. So it's not the same thing. And I don't want to, I don't want people to think it's the same thing because it's not. Right. But, but there's a self-licking ice cream quality to this because the plutocrats do their Supreme Court shopping through these activist groups and then they get Citizens United passed, which then allows them to pour dark money in via Leonard Leo to shape the court in the future. So it's an extraordinary revolving door of dark money. That, and what's extraordinary about that, um, if I have a couple more minutes, is people always get Citizens United wrong. The result in Citizens United, forget the reasoning, forget the rationale, the result is 100% correct. In Citizens United, the federal government told a nonprofit right-wing group they were not allowed to distribute a movie 60 days before the election. That is a prior restraint on political speech. And there is no question, even for me, that's unconstitutional. I don't think anything's unconstitutional, but that is. It's a prior restraint on political speech. And that's what the court should have said. The court should just have said, this is a prior restraint on political speech, and we can't, this law doesn't apply to this case. And, they, and that's what, by the way, that's what they wanted to do. That was the first, that was the first route. And then Justice Kennedy convinced Justice Roberts to hold it over for a year, they re-argued it, and then they reversed a bunch of other cases, which lead to, and, and, that, and, and that thinking rationale and opinion for the court is when dark money really got unleashed. So there was a way for them to decide Citizens United. In a, I mean, Ian, do you really think it's, it's constitutional to have a prior restraint on political speech? No. Right, but they, did they really want to do a narrow ruling? Clearly not. No, exactly, that's my point. My point is they could have reached the, the right result with the right rationale. Instead, they reached the right result with a rationale that let Leonard Leo and his cronies and, and others, and, and, and to be fair, labor unions as well, to amass huge amount of money if they so desire to spend on politics. Um, so it's, it's the cases after Citizens United that are really terrible, that, are, that, are, that came out incorrectly. A guy in Alabama writes a check to a guy in, in California above the limits he's allowed to write a check to, um, and the court says it's unconstitutional. The last time I checked, writing a check isn't writing a check isn't speech. It just isn't. It might facilitate speech. It might allow for speech, but it's not speech. When I write a check to my air conditioner repairman, I am not expressing anything. And when that guy wrote a check to that politician, he really wasn't expressing anything. He was just because no one knew about it. He was just giving money. So that's the real problem. And, and you're right. That unleashing of money post Citizens United's rationale. I like to call it Citizens United's rationale, not Citizens United, because right. the case did connect correctly, if that, if that makes sense to you. Um, Clarence Thomas is the, I think probably the, la this is ironic, is other than Alito, maybe even including Alito, is the last justice who would resign for improper behavior. 
and he's the one who's engaged in what we know of the most improper behavior. It's a, it's a terrible stain. History will not be kind to this. And there will come a day, and I may be dead, I will be dead, um, and if the country survives this long, 50 years from now, Clarence Thomas will be a villain and, and, and will not be looked at that well. He won't be. I hope I'm around to see that. Well, Eric Siegel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Eric Siegel, who's a professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices are Not Judges, and Originalism as Faith. And he also is the host of the Supreme Myths podcast. We're going to take a brief station break. and back speaking with the author of a new book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Well, I got a harmonica job begun to play, blowing my lungs out for a dollar a day. I blow it inside out and upside down. The man there said he loved my sound. He's raving about he loved my sound. Dollar a day's worth. After weeks and weeks of hanging around, I finally got a job in New York town. In a bigger place, bigger money too, even joined the union and paid my dues. Now, a very great man once said that some people rob you with a fountain pen. It don't take too long to find out just what he was talking about. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brendan Ballou, who is a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel at the Department of Justice. He was part of the original team that brought suit in U.S. versus Google and leads the department's work on private equity and interlocking directorates. Previously, he served in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. And he's the author of a new book just out, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brendan Ballou. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've always thought, Brendan, that there was a problem with modern capitalism, particularly the financialization of the economy and uh, Wall Street uh, in the sense that, you know, even in the, in the last century, the, the rubber barons actually produced stuff and they created wealth. But it seems to me the focus is more on extracting wealth and creating wealth. And your book is really, it's hard really at reinforcing that idea. Would you agree? Well, that's uh, kind of you to say, and I should obviously preface by saying that I'm speaking in my personal capacity and my views don't necessarily reflect those of the Justice Department. Um, so I, I think your core premise is correct, which is, um, you know, private equity is a, a real new innovation in our economy. Um, and, you know, it's an innovation that really across the political spectrum, whether you're a Democratic Socialist or a Reagan Republican, um, it should concern you because there are some basic flaws in the private equity business model that tend to lead towards, you know, extraction rather than investment in shirking responsibility rather than taking ownership of companies. And that has all sorts of bad effects across different industries. So let me just sort of quickly summarize, as you've done in your book, that Companies brought by private equity firms are far more likely to go bankrupt than companies that aren't. Over the last decade, private equity firms were responsible for nearly 600,000 job losses in the retail sector alone. In nursing homes where the firms have been particularly active, private equity ownership is responsible for an estimated and astounding 20,000 premature deaths over a 12-year period, according to a recent working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Similar tales of woe abound in mobile homes, prison health care, emergency medicine, ambulances, apartment buildings, and elsewhere. Yet private equity and its leaders continue to prosper, and executives of the top firms are billionaires many times over. So that's there's a social cost here, clearly. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it might be worth just setting a baseline for your listeners um, just to describe what private equity is, and then I can talk about that social cost. Um, so just so everybody understands, uh, private equity firms, what they do is they tend to buy up businesses hold them and try to transform them uh, over a few years and then flip them for a profit. And the challenges that we've got is that private equity firms generally own the businesses only for a few years. 
Uh, they tend to load them up with a lot of debt and extract fees, and they tend to be insulated from liability um, for what their portfolio companies do. And those sorts of flaws in the business model have a lot of bad consequences across industries. So, you know, you already touched on some examples when private equity firms have gotten active in the nursing home industry. Research suggests that they were responsible for tens of thousands of premature deaths. When they got involved in the retail industry, um, there was an estimated nearly 600,000 job losses over a decade at a time when the industry was actually gaining jobs. Um, when they go into, you know, uh, healthcare, there's, uh, uh, you know, research suggesting that there's a rise in surprise medical bills. Or when they go into prison services, there's research saying that prices go up for um, for making phone calls to inmates and to family members. Um, so it's not a, a critique necessarily of the people in private equity. It's um, concern about the legal incentives that we've created um, for this business model and how that plays out in all these different areas. Right, but these private equity firms like Carlyle, which is pretty tight, frankly, with the Democrats, they write the rules, don't they? They lobby like crazy and get favorable rules. I mean, there's been an attempt for the longest time to get rid of uh, carried interest, which is a hu- you know means that these uh, executives don't pay taxes; they pay less taxes than their secretaries do. Or by percentage, they pay less taxes than their secretaries do. So there's also that element, isn't there? The lobbying. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think private equity firms have just been extraordinarily effective uh, in lobbying. And partly that's just a, a numbers game. Private equity and investment firms have donated over $900 million to federal candidates and officials since 1990. Um, part of it's also um, who private equity firms employ. They have former secretaries of treasury, secretaries of state, um, various generals, a CIA director, two speakers of the house, a vice president, um, who all have been working for private equity firms, uh, you know, in the past few years. So they've got a very deep bench to work with. And to go to your specific example, the carried interest loophole, which, as you said, allows um, private equity and other executives to pay lower effective tax rates uh, often than, um, you know, certainly you or I probably do. What they have managed to do is scuttle meaning re- meaningful reform on carried interest um, really across three administrations. This was something that then-Senator uh, Barack Obama campaigned against. He tried to close it. Interestingly enough, President Trump was also opposed to the carried interest loophole, tried to close it as well, uh, and so did President Biden. Thus far, all three have been unsuccessful. Right, but didn't the Congress recently in 2021 make it even worse? They not only did they did they exempt carried interest, they also approved an amendment that largely exempted small and mid-sized companies owned by private equity firms from a new corporate minimum tax? That's exactly right. So uh, President Biden included uh, closing the carried interest loophole in his first budget, and then that became part of the negotiations around what was then the Build Back Better bill and then became the Inflation Reduction Act. Eventually, the close to the carried interest loophole sort of lost its way and was was cut out of those negotiations. And in fact, in the final days of um, sort of the fierce lobbying, there were all sorts of amendments to, to the Inflation Reduction Act around, for instance, providing uh, expanded school lunches, chi- you know, a child tax credit, um, giving dental and hearing benefits to Medicare recipients. All those amendments failed, but one of the amendments that succeeded was, as you said, um, a technical change that would largely, I I don't want to overstate the case, but largely um, would exempt small and medium-sized businesses that are owned by private equity firms from, as you said, a new corporate minimum tax. So let's talk then about, Brendan, about the example of the Carlyle Group and how in 2007 the Carlyle private equity firm, now with $373 373 billion in assets under management bought HCR Medicare for a little over 6 billion most of it borrowed money so could you walk us through this tale of what has been described as vulture capitalism well it's it's a really interesting story because i think it illustrates um, some of the challenges with the private equity business model so as you said 
Carlisle, the very large private equity firm, bought up HCR Manor Care, which was a national nursing home chain. Uh, they then executed a lot of tactics that sort of took away assets from Manor Care. They sold the underlying real estate. They required Manor Care to pay at various transaction and management fees. Ultimately, um, health health complaints in Manor Care rose, and at least one resident died. And when the resident sued, when the resident's family sued uh, for wrongful death, Carlisle actually got the case against it dismissed by arguing that it was not actually the technical owner of Manor Care. Instead, it merely advised a series of funds whose limited partners, through a series of shell companies, ultimately owned Manor Care. And they were able to get the case against Carlisle dismissed that way. And I think what's interesting or important about that story is it shows how oftentimes private equity firms can have operational control over the companies they buy, but don't necessarily have legal responsibility for what those companies do. But the fees that they extracted from HCR Medicare were $80 million, right? At the same time, by 2018, after buying it uh, in 2007, Medicare filed for bankruptcy with over $7 billion in debt. Yeah, the public reporting um, by Peter Wariski and others in the Washington Post suggests that even though Manorcare really struggled under Carlisle's ownership, you know, not just that residents suffered that health code violation spiked, um, but that it was also carrying this enormous amount of debt, at the same time, at least according to this public reporting, Carlisle actually managed to make money out of the deal. So even if it was a situation that did not succeed for residents and for the company itself, it often can succeed for a private equity firm. So in other words, private equity firms benefit from this legal double standard, which has been described as heads I win, tails you lose. I think that's a fair description. So, and how did that come about? Is that, again, goes back to lobbying? You know, it's it's interesting. I think it's a little more complicated than that, um, although lobbying always plays a role in, well, I, I shouldn't say always, but often plays a role in these things. This is actually, I think, an area where the law simply failed to keep up with developing um, business models. So generally, we have something called the corporate veil piercing doctrine, which says, if um, you're just an investor in a company, you know, you've got a, a share in a company through an index fund or, you know, your Vanguard account or something like that, you can't be sued successfully for something that that company does. And that makes sense for, you know, an ordinary retail investor like you or me. I don't I don't control these companies, but it might not make sense for a private equity firm, which is an investor, but actually controls most or all of the stock in the company and so can control its operations. And yet the same corporate veil piercing doctrine applies and largely insulates them from liability. But one of the other aspects of of this, which I think is really alarming, is is when the these companies that the private equity buy and they're successful, some of them are family companies that you know, the ice cream company that, that you profile was goes back to before World War Two and they sort of again they extracted all the wealth, plundered it and put it into bankruptcy and made money, which is an extraordinary. And according to a 2015 Harvard study, private equity firms have pushed more than 50 companies into bankruptcy and sloughed off to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is a government-chartered insurer that rescues these underfunded pensions. So they, they slough it off to the PBGC, with more than $1.5 billion in obligations since 2001. But in the process, pensioners have lost $128 million in benefits. So that I just find unconscionable. It's really interesting. So, And I, if I can briefly walk through that example. So um, a private equity firm named Sun Capital uh, bought up a, a diner chain named Friendly's pushed Friendly's into bankruptcy, but through this trick where Sun Capital both owned the company and was also its largest lender, was actually able to hold on to Friendly's through bankruptcy. And by doing that, they were able to push off the pension obligations of the company onto, as you mentioned, the PBGC. And it's sort of this legal um, sleight of hand that allows private equity firms to and others to retain control of these businesses, while um, other companies, ultimately maybe even taxpayers, have to take on responsibility for the pensions. 
Well, it would seem that the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, if it's had to bail out these companies, uh, these pension funds, they must be stressed. And how much is it are the taxpayer on the hook? You know, I, I don't want to overstate the PBG's, PBGC's responsibility for with taxpayers, but I will because it, it gets funding um, largely from other more responsible pension um, uh, pension systems. I will say that this is something that the PBGC uh, has been and is concerned about. In fact, they filed a petition questioning Sun Capital's ability to do this in that litigation. Um, ultimately, though, they were unsuccessful. So what's the fix here then? We've discussed how powerful the billionaires that run these pension firms like Apollo and Carlyle and Blackstone all benefit enormously. They're all multi-billionaires and they use their lobbying power to get tax rules, etc., that benefit them and their companies and at the expense of companies that they buy up and then plunder. Um, so that's the the downside. What's happening in terms of possible legislative fixes here? Well, to go back to the core flaws or challenges with the private equity business model, it goes to goes back to short-term thinking, reliance on debt and fees, and insulation from liability. And we can address that through a lot of different avenues. Um, Congress is one area, but there are things that federal regulators can do from the Securities and Exchange Commission to the Treasury Department to the Federal Reserve. There's also things that states and localities can do. You know, I mentioned corporate veil piercing doctrines. That's usually state common law and something that states can revise themselves. There are also things that um, ordinary people and state attorneys, attorneys general and litigants can do to sort of help change this business model. So there are a lot of different levers that we have to, to sort of fix the flaws in the private equity business model. I'd encourage people to just look online. There are a number of organizations from Americans for Financial Reform to the Private Equity Stakeholder Project that are doing important work on this. You know, get involved. They have great work that's going on, and you can learn more. But what about, just in closing, uh, uh, forum shopping, credit bidding, and the 363 sales? Can that be shut down? Um, they can certainly be reformed, either through legislation or partly just the process of educating judges who, I believe, typically, you know, generally want to do the right thing. But, you know, they're they are getting great lawyering from the private equity side and maybe aren't hearing the arguments on how this can affect consumers and retirees. Well, Brenda Malou, I thank you so much for joining us here today. This is a very interesting subject and, and one that's been largely overlooked. So I'm, I appreciate your book that's just out, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. I'm grateful for the time. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Brenda Malou, who's a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel at the Department of Justice. He was part of the original team that brought suit in U.S. versus Google and leads the department's work in, on private equity and interlocking directorates. Previously, he served in private practice and before that in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. And he's the author of a new book just out, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who'll ever know how much she loved them so That 